and welcome to Reclamation, an NWM initiative. I am Naomi, and today I am sharing part one of two of Nicole's story. You'll hear a bit about our history together in the interview itself, so I won't share about our connection right now. I do want to say, though, that this conversation haunted me for a while after recording it, and it continues to haunt me every time I think about it. Nicole's bold narrative is a deeply powerful testament to the tragedy that comes from false teaching. Sometimes, as is the case for Nicole, the losses cause irreparable harm. Thank you for joining us in this important work of preventing future stories such as this one and providing a voice to those who are healing. During this interview, the interviewee shared her personal story. NWM is not in any position to verify the accuracy of any allegations made and therefore neither endorses nor embraces opinions of its guests as its own. Our goal is to provide the platform for personal stories to be shared in the hopes that they may help others. Please note that all of our episodes can be difficult to listen to and potentially triggering in different ways. Listener discretion is advised. How are you feeling? Nervous. Nervous. <laughs> I know you keep saying you're a writer and you're not a speaker. So, right. but you don't have to be a speaker for this. Yeah. You really I don't. I just feel like sometimes, like I said, I rabbit trail and sometimes I don't say things as eloquently as I can write them. So it's, it's, I'm usually the one on the interview side. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little interesting for me (laughs) well to help i will um in the episode notes i'll link your websites um and then people can go there and read your writing as well okay (laughs) um i know you brought up starting with how we know each other and do you want to give your side of that first how we know each other yeah um well, I don't know. I was just sitting in a pew at church, and you come, came up to me in the dark. <laughs> I don't remember it being dark. It was um, dark because... That sounds creepy. I do remember kind of, like, coming up. Didn't I, like, kneel down next to you or something? Yeah, or after like the squat te- down? testimony. And it was, like, darker. Yeah. And it was weird because I was actually really disappointed with my testimony mm-hmm. and how it was presented because um, I think the main point got really missed and edited out, which um, obviously I want to <clears throat> share my testimony to help others, but also um, feeling like your voice was silenced for so long and feeling like you finally have an opportunity to, you know, say your piece Mm -hmm. and then having it kind of stripped away from you again, it was actually really hard. So it was really interesting when you came up and you're just like, I know you (laughs) and your story, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that you took the time and, um, it it kind of did make me feel a little more heard of like notice of mm-hmm. not just oh my gosh there's a sad story of this girl losing her husband but I think from the get go you picked up on the deeper side of it mm-hmm. from probably your experience you could probably pick it up more than other people 
And that's kind of the healing that I needed more of the spiritual healing as opposed to just losing my husband. Yeah. Because I was so confused and mm-hmm. I didn't, I couldn't find anybody to really point me in the right direction because nobody really knew what to do with it because mm-hmm. it felt so not normal. Yeah. And that is a story that I have an overlap with. Um, I'm going to offer a couple clarifications for any listeners first. Um, so you had recorded a testimony at a church that I had also been attending at the time and a huge church though. So it's not like we would have highly unlikely we would have just run into each other. Um, and this was shown then at a women's conference and we both were at that women's conference. Um, and the, the testimony was played, you know, up on the big screens and stuff. So I believe it was also, I didn't know what you looked like. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw you then I think either get up and go to the restroom or something. And I saw you and knew, okay, this is the same person, but I knew your name. Mm-hmm. And so and I definitely knew your story um, as far as what you were sharing, at least the, the basics of it. So the background to that is, um, and it was a little sketchy for me. Cause I'm like, I don't know if I can introduce myself. Like I had to think yeah. about that from an ethical standpoint, right. Um, because I was a social worker, not your social worker, of course, but I was a social worker at the hospice that your family was involved with. And so behind the scenes, I was hearing the team updates about what was going on with you and your husband and your pregnancy and your children. And didn't you have a cat that needed a home? (laughs) Yeah. I remember the cat. Oh my gosh, that cat. Um, If, if I didn't have three kids waking me up, then this stupid cat wanted to get out So uh, yeah. in the middle of the night, wake me up. I was like, I can't do this, cat. I'm sorry. I love you, but... Yeah, and I think one of the nurses took that, and I was like, well, should we take the cat? But Because um, I love cats. We were, I mean, I, it's possible I could have had your silly cat. You would have yeah. been seeing your cat right now. Yeah. Um, I hope she's okay. So, <laughs> if she went to who I think she did, she has a lovely life. Um So I was hearing about your story and I was very drawn to what I was hearing. Um, as in, I, I wanted, it was hard not to be a part of it with your family. It was hard not to be on the team, um, with you. So again, I was just behind the scenes hearing about it and offering support to the team because it, the team was very impacted by what was, they were emotional about what was going on and struggling with how do they su- provide support and what does that look like um, in, in, in particularly difficult circumstances. I'll put it that way. Um, I know we're going to get more into it. And a lot of this that we're going to talk about wasn't really known, I don't think, correct? Like the spiritual <laughs> side, a lot of that, maybe some of it, mm, but. I don't know the conversations that he had with his social worker or the Mm -hmm. nurse because we were pretty separate Mm -hmm. separated at that time um so if he had said something along the lines of like his spirituality or anything like Mm -hmm. that or his faith in god or something Mm -hmm. i wouldn't have known and it wasn't brought up to me because i was never really 
I I think I was just kind of lumped together and like, oh, if this is what he wants, then everybody wants this. Mm -hmm. So we'll just kind of tiptoe around it. Okay. So the part that resonates with me that you've already spoken to a little bit is that complicated grief component, which um, when this episode drops on reclamation, um, we will have already dropped a deeper dive conversation with Amber Myers, who is an LCSW on complicated grief. So for anyone listening, I'll link that in the notes for people to go back and, and check out. But I think it's a, a significant overlap that you and I both have struggled with. Nobody does know what to do <laughs> with complicated grief that has this type of complication. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of people who are incredibly versed in complicated grief as a whole. Um, but complicated grief with a cult attachment where the spirituality is warped and causes a lot of issues and confusion, <clears throat> that's a really tough area. Um, and I, I could not, I, to be totally upfront, I could not find support. For that, um, I found some general grief support. Um, I remember doing something very therapeutic, actually, where um, an art therapist covered a wall with brown paper, and I got to just like throw paint all over the place. That was actually like very therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as talking it out and really supporting me, they no one really knew how to do that. Um, the only thing that helped me was not talk therapy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I had gone, had to, and they say, you know, you have to test drive counselors because they're not all great Mm -hmm. (laughs) or they all don't know what to do with you. They're not all a great fit. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're great for other people, but they weren't great for me. And -hmm. and the reason why talk therapy wasn't great for me is because I had um, PTSD on top of complicated grief so no matter how much talking I did, my brain couldn't piece together what happened. Mm-hmm. And so the turning point for me was EMDR therapy mm-hmm. in um, letting my own mind process something that I wasn't allowed to process when it was happening. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> EMDR is not talk therapy. It's It really is. It's... And it sounded kind of like, ooh, a little hokey at first when you kind of read about it. But um, it really did, like, it changed the course for me in my healing when Mm -hmm. I was allowed that space because I wasn't allowed that space for so long. Mm -hmm. People didn't understand Mm -hmm. what was going on. And I didn't understand what was going on in my mind and my body and why I was continually um impacted and like triggered mm-hmm. by stuff so yeah yeah emdr is incredibly it's it's so cool <laughs> i just think it's such a cool intervention and it's one i've almost had a couple of times talk therapy ended up working for me um typically someone will try that route before they would refer and so that's how it happened with me and I'm like no this is good enough there's a part of me that's like but I just want to do it you guys because it's really cool and I just feel like it's gonna you know help even more and my husband Michael actually had EMDR early on in our marriage for some um, triggers that he had going on and he couldn't really pinpoint how to put it all together and it was incredibly effective so yeah basically it's it's 
you're using eye movements to help the brain reconnect and, and process, and mm-hmm. but in a very, in a very safe and kind of controlled environment right. as well. Yeah, it's very fascinating. It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna back us up. So we've covered kind of how we connect, and I think we've we've given a lot of teasers. We've kind of alluded to a lot. So I want to back us up. Um, and fill in some of these blanks for people kind of like what are we sort of talking around right now sure um what is the name of the unhealthy group that you were involved with um so when I had met my future husband (laughs) at the time um he had said um that he was kind of like a Bible scholar. He went through lots of classes. He, he kind of eased into it a little bit because in his past he had, I think, scared women off (laughs) with his intensity about the Bible and his like passion and Mm -hmm. stuff. And, and when I had come onto the scene, I had um, come from, you know, growing up in, I guess, a traditional church, non-denominational background, but also um, having a lot of poor experiences with and letdowns I think with church in general because I was such a deep thinker um and I had all these questions that nobody could really answer and so I was very frustrated and kind of lost and so um when I came onto the scene in his life I was like I was seeking answers that nobody could seem to answer for me and I and I wanted to seek God, but I didn't know how because nobody actually told me that I could have a relationship with Jesus Christ or it was a personal thing. I just, it felt so far, God felt so far away. And so when, when he started talking and answering my questions, I was like, like so simply, uh, I was like, what is this? And so he, he kind of eased into it and was saying, well, there's this really great, minister um named dr werewell and he was from you know 50s 60s 70s movement called the way the way core international um and he he discovered these mysteries in the bible that really nobody else has really discovered before and you know, my, my, he said, you know, my parents were in the way core. I grew up in the way core. Um, and then I've taken all the classes. I've read all the books. Here's this book, Power for Abundant Living. You have to read this. And he was super genuine and super excited. And that's one thing that really drew me to him was his passion about and his love for God and his knowledge. Like he could point out, the Greek translation and the comma shouldn't be here. And this actually means this and look and, and in the, you know, and all these different, very complicated things, he just made seem super easy to understand. Mm -hmm. And so I was very drawn with that because I was a very lost person, but also really, really wanting to find my faith. Mm -hmm. Um, so he had invited me to a Bible study, a quote-unquote, not a Bible study. It was like the foundational class of Power for Abundant Living, mm-hmm. which is 
something that Dr. Werewolf started in the way. And it was kind of this intro to the more deeper classes that were offered later um, in the way core before um, Dr. Werewolf died. So in this intro class, it was held in his pastor's basement because um, home fellowships were church. Like church wasn't brick and mortar. It wasn't a place. It was the body. Like wherever three or more are gathered, that's where church is. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's like, you have to take this class mm-hmm. to understand the mysteries. of it. And, it. and so I meet this pastor and this wasn't uh, we are the way. It was... It was an unsaid thing that this is where we came from, from the way, but we splintered off. This is our own thing. We're not a part of the way anymore because Dr. Werewolf died. They, the way core as it is now is not what a lot of the original way people wanted to associate with, I think. Mm -hmm. So they made branch fellowships and things like that. So this is what... I entered into into this basement class. Okay, I guess so. There's overlap with the way, but it's not a hundred. It's a splinter group where it's not a hundred percent the same doctrine. Right. I think a lot of the foundational things are the same, and and obviously using the books and the classes, and I had to pay for the book and um, all these things. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got introduced to the whole thing Mm -hmm. i'm gonna ask one kind of technical question that i'm pretty sure i know the answer to but i just would want to point out because i think it's something important for people to think about typically the nature of splinter groups the leaders end up without any oversight because they're not actually a part of like this bigger picture anymore do you know if this gentleman and i don't want to say a name or anything Mm -hmm. but do you know if this gentleman had any oversight or was he really just kind of running this thing by himself yeah it was just a soul thing that he had uh he was the pastor of this home fellowship yeah yeah and um but all of the older uh, believers mm-hmm. is what they we were like everyone was the, a believer mm-hmm. who like kind of went to this home fellowship um directly were tied with the original way mm-hmm. um with dr werewolf mm-hmm. as the front leader or the uh overseer mm-hmm. of the whole thing um yeah okay. i want to move into i, I want you to share what happened with you and Phil and your family, if you don't mind sharing that. Um, Because I think, first of all, it's pivotal in your story. And I think it will give the context for how the spiritual side complicated things. Um, But before we do that, will you share what was your relationship then with the spiritual group? Did you full on own it and you're like, I'm a part of this too. Were you like, no, I, I don't think this is for me. And I, like, what did that look like for you personally? So, um, like I had mentioned before, the way just with Phil and I's personal conversations, when we would do our own Bible studies, I felt so at ease. I felt really impressed by his knowledge because clearly he had, um, studied a lot And, um, but when 
I could almost sense, I'm a, I feel like one of my gifts that God has given me that has helped me a lot my whole life has been discernment and like just feeling out situations. And, and I always say like getting that pit in your stomach is a pretty big red flag for me. Um, so walking into that basement the first time I felt that pit, Mm -hmm. but I also was interested in Phil. Mm -hmm. I was also interested in learning more because what I had learned up until then wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. Like church wasn't working like as a whole, but I wanted God. I didn't want Mm -hmm. church and this was something completely different. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what kept the curiosity kept me there, Mm -hmm. but also my attachment to Phil. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the guy played the guitar and could sing. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, you didn't have a I'm shot. I'm a sucker. <laughs> you didn't have a shot. <laughs> yeah. I'm a sucker for the musicians. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, that's how we met Adam. Open mic night. But mm-hmm. I digress. <laughs> um, but yeah, stepping into that basement, I actually invited my mom because I wanted to be like, look, I found this like Christian guy finally, (laughs) you know, come to this Bible study. Like Mm -hmm. that's what it was presented to me as this is this Bible study. And so she was excited because she wanted to do something with me because she had thought, you know, she was upset for a long time thinking that like I had lost my way. And Mm -hmm. so she was excited too. So she sat through these, I, I I can't remember how long the power for abundant living classes, but I'm sure you can look, look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, like four weeks, six weeks, I don't know. So every um, one day a week, we'd all meet in this basement and talk about the mysteries that no other churches know about that are clearly and plainly pointed out in the Bible. Um, and so this pastor kind of led us through looking at these passages and what regular church teaches versus what the truth is mm-hmm. and versus it, and it was always um correct interpretation correct interpretation the bible says what it says nothing else you can't change it it's you can't interpret it the way you want to interpret it it's it is what it is in its original text in greek or aramaic or mm-hmm. hebrew or whatever like mm-hmm. In the original text, mm-hmm. you can't change it. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what <clears throat> kept the driving point of, look, this whole verse changes if you move the comma. This comma wasn't originally here. Now it reads completely different. And so the, a bunch of different things like that, I'm like, oh, wow. So the intellectual in me is like, wow, that's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> well, and if I may jump in... What I'm curious about now is, I mean, you just gave a definition for exegesis, like how to properly read the Bible um, and then how to interpret it based on what the author was saying at the time to the audience at the time. Mm -hmm. So knowing that cultural difference and being able to take that meaning and then we know how to apply it to today because we know what Mm -hmm. what it's actually saying. Mm -hmm. Because in our culture, something can look very different than for example the culture you know 2000 years right. ago like so, orientalism ex- yes totally yeah um so not i couldn't disagree completely with what you just explained 
Mm-mm. And I, I think yeah. that's important to point out because I wouldn't want anyone who's listening to think, oh, so it's bad to do that. It's not. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is what they then did <laughs> or what they claimed they then did that they didn't really do. Right. Which is why this is so hard for me to even be here <laughs> because I see a lot of truth, but you can have a lot of truth, you know, but if there's a one bad apple, it can kind of taint the whole thing. <laughs> yes. So that makes any sense. Yeah. I had, um, someone, I think she just made it very, I think she said it in just such an understandable way. Um, let me know if you agree with this. She's like, you get a truth, a truth, and then they slip in a lie. And there's mm-hmm. a truth, a truth, and then they slip in a lie. And there's there's enough truth that the lie, even if, like, you kind of go, huh, that seems off or that seems odd, when you take it all as a whole, you're like, oh, this is all generally right and good, though. And it's just so much easier to kind of let it roll off your back and keep going. Because um, mm-hmm. there are some things that, you or I could walk into where you'd be like, this is so radically wrong. Yeah. And other things where you've got to work a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. And so how it was presented was like, yeah, it's right here. It's Mm -hmm. in my, it's, I can see it for myself Mm -hmm. in this Bible. That is what this says. Mm -hmm. And, um, how to, you know, look at concordances Mm -hmm. and how to, um, compare the different translations. And so, uh, like I said, the intellectual part of me was like, yeah, yeah, this make I can make this make sense, which is what humans want to do <laughs> in life is make things make sense. And there's a lot of things about God that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Like I have never had a pastor ever explain any of this to me, but with some key differences of like, there is not a trinity jesus is not god the bible i was told clearly stated jesus is not god Mm -hmm. that the mystery is christ in us which means not only salvation but that we can do everything christ did we can heal people Mm -hmm. we can prophesy we can um teach we can like all the gifts of the spirit was Mm -hmm. huge and that we had a power for abundant living and that's what god wanted for us that we were meant to be whole and healed here on this earth as believers as long as we have christ in us and so the end of the class and a part of the mystery of christ in us is also speaking in tongues Mm -hmm. which i don't disagree Agree with the Bible talks a lot about that. Paul talks a lot about it. However, it was presented the only way you can know for sure that you Christ is in you is if you can speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because up until that point, my mom was on board. And when he started, okay, we're all gonna like start practicing speaking in tongues together. I've never not had anybody do it. And she got up and left. Mm-hmm. And I was stuck between do I go follow my mom? Because mm-hmm. clearly she's upset. Mm-hmm. Do I be like, oh, well, I got to figure follow this through, you know? And so I did, but I was really upset because I was like, why Why do I have to make this so public? This is really uncomfortable. I, I felt upset. I, I started crying because I was like, I don't want to really do this. Like, this is not... 
I want to make a choice to do this. And I feel really forced to do this. And so they brought me in his office and was like, you can do this. And like coaching me to like speak in tongues. And so like I finally did. And I mean, I, I didn't see like stars in the heavens didn't open up and I didn't change into this new being or anything like that. It wasn't like that. And that's not what I was promised either. But um, I was like, okay, well that was weird. <laughs> Cause yeah. So um, I, I, I it, it was just under the guise of like, okay, all of these things in the Bible said, says this. So this, whatever has been going on, up until this point, what I was exposed to in church, like maybe it was all wrong. Maybe I, maybe I wasn't saved. Maybe, maybe this is so uncomfortable because, you know, any uncomfort or any negative thoughts was immediately like, it's the devil. So it's like, well, I don't want to question what, what's true. Cause I don't want to give in to that. And, and Phil knows so much and mm-hmm. is so passionate about this like mm-hmm. and, it, and I was so drawn into it because of him and my attachment to him right the whole interesting ironic part about the whole thing that as believers we can have a powerful abundant life now like here on earth right now mm-hmm. um which means if we re- pray and request and we expect wealth if we pray and request and expect mm-hmm. health success no fear all the negative things like we can just kind of shed off because we are like new men and women in christ like we have our so the ironic part about the whole thing is that in his early 20s phil was diagnosed with lung cancer before i met him he had uh gotten his one lung removed and when we started dating i had asked him so, you know, how's that going? Right. And he had never gone back to the doctor because he's like, well, I, I'm just healed. It's, I'm just believing I'm healed. So whatever. And I'm like, I think maybe you should go to the doctor. <laughs> um, because like I said, with the feelings and all the kind of attachment, and I still felt super uneasy about this new doctrine and I couldn't really put my finger on it. So I wasn't like gung-ho, yes, this is it. This is my life now. I'm like all in 100%. It was still like one foot in, one foot out. Like I didn't jump into the pool. I was kind of hanging out on the Mm -hmm. edge Mm -hmm. and observing because that's how I am. I just, I'm an observer. And um, so that's the ironic part that he, I finally talked to him and going to the doctor. He sat me down after the doctor's appointment and he said, it's back there's seven tumors in my remaining lung um and i could see in him the struggle between wanting to be real with me because at least he was honest and didn't just say oh whatever i'm healed um so i think that was made it more complicated because here's a person who grew up hearing you have christ in you you can heal yourself or you, if people lay hands on you, you can be healed and all these miracles can happen. And yet he went through surgery to remove his lung. He went through chemo. He, by himself, mostly, like, I don't think a lot of his friends were even really aware what was going on because mm-hmm. he didn't want to want people to fuss over it. Mm-hmm. So here I come and I'm like, I don't know what it was or why, but I just said, I guess we better get married. (laughs) 
Oh, because I was trying. It was kind of joking. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he never said, I'm, he never said, I'm stage four, I'm terminal, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. That was never a conversation. But it was kind of an unspoken thing, I think, between us that neither of us were even brave enough to talk about. Mm-hmm. We got married like two months later mm-hmm. and he was told um, he would never have kids because of all the chemo and stuff. And um, I got pregnant with twins. And then uh, then I got pregnant with my third child two years after the twins. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I see... Despite all of the confusing doctrine that we were like clinging to, mm-hmm. God still made his, his true presence known. Like he didn't abandon us. Mm-hmm. He didn't like punish us for not knowing everything right. <laughs> or maybe believing skewed things. Mm-hmm. Or I think Phil grew up believing all these things and being told all these things that that it was just a natural thing for him to do. Like he didn't question, like he was told he was going to be healed. And so if you don't talk about it and you don't confess it, then there wasn't anything to talk about. So we didn't talk about it. And he did. But again, that's the confusing part because yes, he still went to get scans. We didn't just completely ignore it. Right. Um, How long had it been ignored between his first surgery and then you encouraging him to go back. Because I'm assuming he was in remission no. in between. He hadn't no. been? He was never declared. Got it. Okay, so he has a but then he just... He just finished his surgery and just didn't go back. Okay. Do you know how much time had gone in between? I'm not 100% sure. Maybe a couple years, a year. Okay. I don't know. And it sounds like because of... And this would be typical. It makes sense logically with the beliefs of the group that... No one, no one else is encouraging him to do anything other than claim his healing. Right. I mean, I believe that he went to a couple of really close friends mm-hmm. and to tell them that, hey, the cancer came back. And they're like, oh, no, it didn't. Hey, man, you know, just confess. Just believe positively. It's not back. You're healed. You know, don't give in to that. Mm-hmm. And so, again, me sitting on the edge of this pool, looking inwards, mm-hmm. things just red flags started blaring in my face. And, you know, when we moved and I started seeing his like extensive collection of like Dr. Werewolf books Mm -hmm. and really looking at them and I'm like, and there was these books written about this guy who is dead, who told everybody you're, you know, we're going to, you can, we're meant to live forever, you know? And, and he died, like, I think in his sixties or seventies of ironically cancer <laughs> that nobody knew about. Um, cause nobody wanted to say it like how your leader who tells you all these things dies. And so that's strange. <laughs> um, these people were putting Dr. Werewolf on this pedestal, like, like he was this great man of God and, and it just kept saying his name more than God. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is why are we putting our, why are people putting their faith in this person who one is dead and two is not God and is not Jesus? Mm-hmm. And so I started pointing these things out and we kind of butt heads a little bit, but I, I did see Phil kind of the wheels turning and being like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. this is probably not adding up. And so I could kind of see the struggle with him too. Mm-hmm. 
So when you were getting towards the end of Phil's life, what was the dynamic and the belief at that time? As you're seeing his decline, were you believing that he would be healed or were you believing that, no, they're wrong and I'm going to lose him? I didn't want to acknowledge that they're wrong, I'm going to lose him. I think that some of what was going on wasn't like doctrinal misguidance. I think a lot of it was also denial. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was 28 and he was 34 and we had just started our marriage. We weren't even married four years. And so um, I did everything I could. Like I went to, I went to nutrition classes. I like got all the supplements I was trying to like cure him I was trying to support him um he had told me do not say anything negative about my health like if you say if people ask be positive um so that's what I was told to say that's what I was told to email people people didn't know how bad it was I was by myself in that I was always torn between how I really felt and how I should be feeling. Mm -hmm. So waking up in the middle of the night, making sure he's still breathing, and then feeling super guilty that I just believed wrongly for him. Mm -hmm. And that if I believe wrongly for him, then maybe it's my fault Mm -hmm. that he's not getting better. But I couldn't help but be scared. But then I had to put on a brave face with everybody else because I was trying to honor his wishes. It was his life. It was his illness Mm. what am I supposed to do you know I was trying to be his wife and support him Mm. the only time and I think that a lot of even the professionals medical professionals wanted to treat us with like satin gloves and not be real with me or him um because it was just such a like sad story here I am like pregnant with our third child and he's undergoing like intensive chemo treatments to try to slow down the like massive growths in his lungs the only time that a doctor was real with us was in september when he um went into the hospital for what he had a panic attack and a breathing attack because he couldn't breathe Mm -hmm. and she was this european doctor and she just point blank you are going to die in six weeks or less what are your plans? And that was the first time we had ever heard anything like that. Like ever. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around that Mm. because um, our daughter was supposed to be born in like seven weeks. (laughs) So we both kind of teamed together. We're like, no, like God told me, he said, God told me I would live to see my kids. Like I'm going to be healed. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And so he stopped treatment. And this is where it's just confusing for me because yes, we wanted healing, but we also did do medical intervention. We did enter hospice. We did ask for help. So I, it's hard for me to explain our reasoning. And I'm trying to think if I can help you explain it because to me, you're making sense. (laughs) This makes sense to me. Um, it rem- I have this 
semi-related moment of calling my brother. I had gone to visit some friends for New Year's Eve and my mom had been staying with my dad. This was out of state. She had not been in New York with us. She had been in Ohio with him for at least a couple of months and I had kept hearing he's fine. And I showed up to see him and he was very much not fine. I actually saw him for the first time in several months on a Tuesday and he died that Sunday. So that's how not fine he was. He was in his active dying phase already. And I had still been told the previous week he was fine. And I saw him and was really wrestling with myself. And the way I ended up telling my brother that he should come see our dad, I, I still remember this. And I definitely had dissociated at the time because I can can see myself making this phone call. I called him and said, for all intents and purposes, based on what it looks like logically and from an American worldview, for all intents and purposes, dad is dying and he's going to die soon. I think you should come. I couldn't actually say I believed he was dying because I still couldn't receive that. I still believed that something, I believed it so strongly, Nicole, that I left Saturday night and went home and he died at noon on Sunday. That's how much I believed it. But yet I told my brother he should come kind mm-hmm. of like just in case, you know, it's yeah, this your logical weird, part. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Again, I don't know that that's helpful in explaining it for someone, but shock can put anyone into that kind of in-between place anyway. So maybe that term is more helpful Um, in in normal, more normal day-to-day terms, like a state of shock where it's like my reality and my belief system are not aligning and I don't know what to do with that. So I'm kind of living in reality, but I still have my belief system. And so it's like this ongoing out-of-body experience where I, I never really know if I even fully agree with what I'm doing or not. Right, yeah, that's perfect. Because <laughs> it's hard It's hard to explain because it's like I almost feel like I have to justify, like, I wasn't stupid, I wasn't crazy, I was 28, I had never been around death, I had never had to deal with hospice, I had never had to deal with anything. I was, we were newlyweds and new parents. Like this, it was like way over my head. And then adding all the spiritual pressure. At that point, I really do feel like I had dissociated from myself and I was going, I was just supporting him and doing what he wanted. It, It was not about me. Like any of my needs like went out the window. Yeah. Um, Once hospice came in, did that shift anything for you? No, it made it worse because I was separated. Um, his fam, or, so I still remember. And let me clarify this. I'm not sure if I said that clearly. So let me just clarify quickly in case. Did it shift anything belief wise for you? No. I was letting him take the lead and I still remember the relief I felt, but also the guilt I felt for feeling relief when he was in the bathtub and I was still pregnant at the time. Um, And he called me in and he said, I don't think this is going to go very well. And he started crying and he said, I don't understand why this isn't working. 
I speak in tongues. I have Christ in me. I am requesting and claiming that I'm healing. Why isn't this working? And that was the first time I'd ever seen him allow himself to be real for a second. And I was like, oh my gosh, like he's saying these things finally. Like, can we be real now? You know? And um, and I was like, we need to tell your family. Because he had not allowed me to say anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I said, we need, you need to tell your family. And so he did. He called. He's like, we need help. You know? Mm-hmm. And what we got back was... We're believing for your healing. We'll come out and help after the baby's born. We're praying for you. So when somebody's actively dying, which was not explained to me by the professionals at all, I had no idea what an active dying process looked like. I didn't know that the hallucinations and the confusion and the panic and the paranoia and the mood swings and the all the things I had no idea um so I was dealing with that by myself I had two win two-year-olds and I was pregnant and I was also trying to figure out and try to remember how I'm supposed to dose this morphine to this person who's screaming at me saying that the morphine's possessed and it has the devil in it and I need to throw it in the trash because he's not going to take it and so I'm at a loss I don't know what to do and I don't have any help besides my mom who came to help put the twins to bed because I couldn't lift them up anymore by myself mm-hmm. I remember the only time that I was free to say what I needed was at when I went to my last midwife appointment by myself <laughs> um, and I'm sitting there in this you know the gown and all the things and I'm i I had enough courage or exhaustion, one or the two, to, like, I just broke down and I told the midwife, like, everything. And I, the boys, my twins were born in, like, 15 minutes. Uh, So I said, I don't want to have this baby by myself in the kitchen. Like, he can't. Like, I was just by myself. Like, my husband couldn't get up and go on late night ice cream runs if I had cravings or, like, drive me to the hospital when I had contractions or anything like I was just by myself and so I told her I didn't want to have the baby by myself and so she was the only person that I was like honest with because I said my husband's dying and then I felt guilty for saying it but that was the only time I had to it was the only time I could speak up for myself because I wasn't around anybody else. It was just me. I didn't have to like put on a brave face or be strong. And so she like jumped into action. She's like, we're gonna pick a date for you to be induced because of how quick you had your boys. Like it very well could be possible that you could have a kitchen floor baby. So we'll just like make, here's this date, like make it to this date. This is your goal. And I felt so much better, at least, like, they knew the situation. I felt, like, this weight off my shoulders. I felt like somebody heard me, you know? Somebody realized maybe how crazy this was. And I really, he had one foot in the grave two weeks before our daughter was born. Like, I 
was fully preparing my, cause I, at that point could not sleep in bed with him because of the oxygen machines. Cause he was up all night with panic attacks and nightmares and mm-hmm. insomnia. And I had to sleep. Like I had to hold it together for the twins and myself. So I was sleeping on the couch by myself. So every morning I woke up and I was fully prepared to open that door and he wouldn't be there, but he was. um, And so the morning that I was going to go to the hospital, he's like, I just can't go. Like he, he was so concerned with the fact that he couldn't carry his oxygen with him to the hospital. (laughs) And I'm like, well, we're going to a hospital that has oxygen, like in the wall, Mm -hmm. you're fine. But he couldn't wrap his head he was like so confused and so I my dad dropped me off at the hospital and I there was again alone with this baby like okay I'm gonna have this baby by myself my mom had to watch the twins Mm -hmm. and I called Phil and it was like and the nurses were amazing they they reserved a whole room for him Mm -hmm. and a hospital bed in the maternity ward for him Mm -hmm. And I called him. I said, they have a whole room. You can hook your oxygen right into the wall. And so that convinced him to come. So the nurses, you know, would wheel him back and forth between my room. And then he would go rest and all the things. And I'm getting to a point here um, with with our spirituality is um, when I was finally, I finally had our daughter and he was there. And that's what he said. God told him that he would live to see his daughter. And he... he I had never seen him with so much energy after she was born. He got up from his wheelchair. He followed her around, taking pictures. Like, he was so proud of her. He was so excited. He took pictures of her, like, getting her first bath and getting all the things, you know. And then um, I remember, you know, they pushed our hospital beds up next to each other. So, like... I could sleep next to him, which hadn't happened for like months. But he, again, was, he took off his oxygen. He's like, this baby, it healed me. And so he's, you know, ringing the nurses more than me. (laughs) Hey, check my oxygen levels. Like, am I better? He was like trying to convince himself because I think he wanted to be there for us. So I was a little annoyed <laughs> with them kind of, because I'm like, dude, I just had a baby and you're you're getting more attention than me. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm like, I, I just need to sleep. So he was sitting and he's like, I got to write this down. And it was funny because I, I, I had signed a thing to go get my tubes tied. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, let's go do it. And he's like, what? Because I honestly didn't talk to him about it. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to bother him with that. I don't want any more kids, you know. And he's like, we are going to have, like, five more kids. Oh, good we are, And I'm like, okay. And I was like, okay. And she looks at, the nurse looks at me. And I'm like, whatever. I don't even care. I was like, whatever he says. I just went along with it. Yeah. But he um, spent all night. This is... He never... <sighs> Uh, he could never say that he was dying. He never um, could say that he was like in his last of days. And I begged him to write letters to the kids. 
And he never would. He said no. Because that was like his admission, I guess, if, if he did something like that. I think it was way too hard for him. But what he did do and what he could do was um, that night in the hospital while I was sleeping, and I didn't know this, but he went around and tracked down every nurse and doctor who was like involved to write a letter to his daughter about her birth. And that's what he could do. And I found that little folder you know later I mean he showed me he showed it to me later I was like what is this and he he just told me what he did and I that was his way of being there for her but he never quite could forgive him that he never wrote any letters to his kids and but I do understand you know also um that's that's a hard reality to accept for anyone let alone additionally i i i'm an outside perspective so i do not say this by any means to be dismissive of how you feel um i would be upset about that too when i think about my son i struggle not to place the blame where i think it belongs which is the teachers of the false theology that put him and your family in a position to not be present in what was really happening. And that presence would have allowed your family to have maximized the time in a way that you were unable to, in a way that was taken from you. Yeah. And that's the perf- That's how I describe it is when I brought that baby home, it all hit the fan mm-hmm. and our end of days or whatever together, um, were stolen from this belief system. And it, it, it didn't get amplified until I brought that baby home mm-hmm. and his family came in and I was this postpartum wreck mm-hmm. sleeping in the living room with a newborn trying to heal. But everyone seemed to have forgotten that I had just mm-hmm. had a baby mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wasn't supposed to be running after twins and I wasn't supposed to be up and carrying loads of you know all these things Mm -hmm. I was not a concern I wasn't even a concern for myself I had overheard a conversation because I was upset I had just had a baby I had no help my mom tried but I mean she had only done so much and when his family came in she's like okay I'm relieved I gotta you know take some rest which but I still overheard a conversation of one of his family members. And like, I don't understand why Nicole's so upset. Why is she crying all the time? My mom's like, um, do you not see what's going on? It was like, there was a disconnect. It was a disconnect of, like I said, there's a fine line between hope and denial. And we were all walking that line real, real close. And at that point, I was in survival mode, and I was like, I got to keep this baby alive. I got to keep myself alive. I got to keep Phil alive, and I got to keep these toddlers alive. I don't really care what the heck else goes on. So I had no personal space. I was sleeping in our living room. There was people all around, nurses, social workers, his pastor, who would come in, tell him, you don't have to be in hospice. You don't have to take these meds. 
have these Bible studies with him in his room while the door was shut on me. And I had no personal space, no understanding of what was going on between his family and these uh, pastors or whoever coming in. Thank God Bill did agree before, a little bit before things got really bad, really early on in my pregnancy, he agreed to go to a brick and mortar church Mm -hmm. because quite honestly, they had childcare and we could actually like focus on the sermon. Mm -hmm. And they were a huge support. They were complete strangers who completely, like we had, I had more support from strangers Mm -hmm. than the people who were the closest to our situation. Thank you for listening to this production of Naomi Wright Ministries. You can learn more about us by visiting NaomiWrightMinistries.com. Please note that any opinions represented by this ministry are not to be mistaken as medical or professional counseling advice or services. Employees, volunteers, representatives, guests of Naomi Wright Ministries may be individually trained, authorized, or licensed to provide professional counseling, psychological treatment, or psychological diagnoses. What you are listening to or viewing is not the provision of any such services. None of the interviews represented here creates a counselor-counselee relationship.